Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamasa Mashoki, 
and I'm all about institution building. Um, in order for me to understand importance institution building, in order for people to understand importance, let me just talk briefly a bit about the 8th anniversary of NATO assault on Libya. And this happened back in 2011. And this is important because what happened, NATO under the auspices of the U.S. bombed NATO in an attempt to assassinate Muammar Gaddafi. Of course, Muammar Gaddafi was a big advocate of pan-Africanism. Now, interestingly enough, though, there was some propaganda uh, promulgated by the uh, promulgated by the West, which says that uh, Gaddafi was using black Africans, quote unquote, black Africans, whatever that means, uh, black Africans. I'm assuming they're talking about dark-skinned Africans for the sole purpose of uh, attacking opposition to uh, Gaddafi. Of course, the, the the NGO, the British Civilians for Truth, in the investigation found out, you know, by being there, that that wasn't true. But despite the fact that it wasn't true, Arab nationalists used it as an occasion to wipe out over 30,000 African people in a village called Pawagwa. And uh, nobody talks about it even today. And this whole uh, 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 conflict that exists between Arab nationalists and Africans is something that we have to at some point begin to explore because it is a, a quintessential threat to African you know, aspirations and well-being. So the question in terms of institutions become important because we have to be able to discern those those forces which are about African empowerment, those who are in opposition to African uh, empowerment. So whether we're talking about Christian fundamentalism or Arab nationalism, we have to begin to have that discussion to take place. Because if we don't have that discussion, then my concern is that if, you know while we're busy fighting one adversary, then there's another one who's closer to us who may be doing things not in the interest of African people, and we need to be aware of that. So institutions are extremely important. I encourage people to get busy about the effort of building institutions in the community. And Brother Africa, again, I'm going to thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Akeem. And next we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the move. Revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa and the fellow panelists. Thanks for having me. And revolutionary greetings to the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, G.C., Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay, following Brother Anthony, and now we bring in our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Yes, greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. And I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years in 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show one more time. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And Father, Brother Moses, we have Brother Zubari. Brother Zubari, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Peace, everybody. Brother Zubari, resident researcher, looking forward to another insightful program. It's an honor and privilege to be able to appear. Okay, panelists, like always, let's start off with what's going on in your world and the community. Start off with you, Brother Hackey. Lead us off today. What's going on in your world in the community? Uh, a couple of things. First, African Awareness Association will travel the road of liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be visiting Guantanamo, Santa de Cuba, and Havana. 
This trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. Uh, for more information, we ask you to call us at 202-714-9435. Or email us at after Africa Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And we encourage people to go to Cuba see for themselves firsthand, you know, why Cuba is so exceptional, why humanity needs Cuba. Uh, in addition to that, hopefully along the way, learning the under, important in terms of understanding the role institutions play in terms of shaping lives of the people who live, you know, under in those institutions. Now, the second thing, Brother Africa, I want to talk about, and I think this is somewhat um, uh uh, for me, at least, is somewhat um, problematic. Uh, this whole question around, you know, recently there was a U.S. Coast Guard, uh, Lieutenant Christopher Hansen, uh, uh, who was, uh, it was alleged anyway, that he was about to carry out some um, uh, attacks. Uh, he wanted to kill some people who he had philosophical and political disagreements with. Well, this individual, this Lieutenant Christopher Hansen, was released on bail. Interestingly, interestingly enough, though, uh, the whole question around terrorism was never presented by the prosecution or the state. And the question raised, the question, of course, the question is, why didn't the state raise the issue in terms of, um, in terms of terrorism? Well, this is important because when you, when you talk about the evidence that they had against him, uh, one of the things is that he had a generated sheet uh, from the computer, a spreadsheet, listing those politicians and journalists he wanted to assassinate. Uh, in addition to that, on his computer hard drive, it indicated that he was doing a search for the addresses of the people that he intended to assassinate. Now, if this isn't damning enough, uh, he, this guy stockpiled over 15 handguns, 7 rifles, and 1,000 rounds of ammunition. In addition, he also had firearm silencers. Now, silencers, of course, are illegal. So that alone, given the conspiratorial nature of the charges, that alone should have, should have meant that at the very minimum there should have been some terrorism charges and that he shouldn't have been able to, re- to receive bail. But the mere fact that someone saw, 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 saw the, um, someone actually Presented bail for him, made it possible for him to get bail, raises some for me some very problematic um, 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 questions. I think that um, one of the things that you know, if you if you put the shoe on another, on another foot, and if that was someone of color who actually was engaged in this conspiratorial nature of this particular particular crime, then clearly uh, there would be grounds in terms of holding them simply because they represent an enhanced and, and a, a real threat to the community. But the mere fact that he was able to get get bail speaks volumes in terms of the kind of indifference. Uh, toward um, um, toward the um, the uh, the, uh, the plight of people in society who find themselves confronted, you know, with a system that that across the board is diametrically hostile to the existence of people, particularly people of color. So this this the question that he got bail speaks volumes in terms of not only you know the, the weak in the society who who have these fascist tendencies, but we're talking about very powerful people uh, with these fascist tendencies, and it's manifests itself in terms of the kind of decisions that are being made. So I think if that doesn't scare people, then I don't think anything will. But it's clearly we understand that him is receiving bail, uh, and like I said before, given the conspiratorial nature of this, of this crime, clearly he should have been in hell, but he wasn't. He was released. So this is very problematic. So I think we need to just think about what the hell is going on in this country. They didn't charge him with terrorism or hate crime. What did they charge him with? No, no, no. That's that's the point. That was the point. That was the, the state, the prosecution, didn't raise up anything with respect to um, with respect to terrorism. The judge wanted to know, you know, are you going to pursue terrorism charges? And he wanted to know some, some, some specifics in terms of the terrorism. Well, the state didn't, didn't present any, and as a recourse, the judge let him go. And uh, they're going to try him on weapon charges, but that's it. But it doesn't carry the same penalty as the terrorism charges would have carried. But the point is that the mere fact that they allow him bail, given the given the 
the um, speculative nature of the charges that he was confronted with, it speaks volumes in terms of the two justice system that exists in this country. Because if he was a person of color, heaven forbid if he was an African or he was a Muslim and he got caught with all of this, this information uh, on his hard drive, then that in itself would have justified him remaining you know, in jail. Well, this guy is out of jail, and he's back at his job working for the Coast Guard. So clearly there's some double standards in terms of the whole question in terms of terrorism. So when people talk about, you know, uh, does terrorism exist in America, well, based upon this, 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 this understanding in terms of this case, you know, one could conclude that they're saying that terrorism committed by white people doesn't exist. So I think it's very, very problematic across the board, and I think people got to be very concerned about the nature of fascism in society and the creeping totalitarianism that we're confronted with here in America. Well, Rick, I just wondering, with sound like with his makeup psychologically, I wonder if he has already, if he has already killed, killed some other people, and they just never uh, pursue it. Is that possible? But the problem is, you know, well, that's that's always plausible because the problem is that any time you have these serious kinds of crimes and people walk, normally they're connected uh, to very powerful people, and so there's possibly possibly he committed other crimes, you know, under auspices of the state or uh, working with the intelligence agencies in terms of carrying out universe killings. It's always possible, Brother Africa. The mere fact that they released him on bail speaks volumes in terms of his connections. So I'm very concerned about in terms of the message that is sent in terms of um, this proclivity of, around terrorism not being addressed uh, when it comes to, to white people, and particularly when we talk about those white people who are affiliated with the military. We've got to be very concerned about that. Panelists, any response to... What's going on with hockey, Will? Uh, yes, I think it's a very uh, serious issue, and there is a double standard uh, when it comes to um, uh, prosecuting people that, uh, uh, you know, with uh, similar uh, charges but of a, di- uh, of a different ethnic or religious background. And uh, in addition to being uh, discriminatory, Notory is a very it creates a very dangerous situation, and it's a sign of the of the disregard uh, that uh, this society has for Africans and um, uh, people of uh, indi- uh, 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 indigenous descent in this society, and uh, people need to be very aware of their surroundings. Okay, Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world, in your world, in the community? Okay, um, a few things. Um, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is organizing African Liberation Days and Palestine Day 2019 on Saturday, May 18th. It'll be a Pan-African and International Revolutionary Podcast Symposium from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Our theme this year is Generations of Resistance and Revolts, Rebellions and Revolutions as Illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine, and Venezuela. Smash the Repression Industrial Complex Worldwide, Remembering and Honoring the Birthdays of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. For more information, please call 202-239-2676. And uh, check out our website at www.a-aprp.org. 
www.gc.org. Also, um, the Trump administration has decided to uh, implement Title III of the Helms-Burton Act, which allows um, those Cubans that fled Cuba uh, to the U.S., uh, at the start of the revolution to sue Cuba in U.S. courts for the confiscation of, uh, for the nationalization of their uh, properties. And uh, that is, uh, and that is going to have, uh, a, could have a huge impact and, uh, and cause uh, even additional suffering for the masses of the Cuban people and it's already antagonized uh, some um, uh, some 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 other capitalist countries uh, worldwide. Also, uh, there are a group of people that are occupying the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. to prevent a takeover by uh, Juan Guaido and his supporters uh, from the legitimate government of. Uh, Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela. Yeah, here's something about the Venezuela. Let me respond to Title III in terms of the Hell Burdens Act. One thing that's interesting is that um, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, stated that he will wait just last month. He, he said he would study the, the, the idea for six months. Well, obviously, for some reason, they changed their mind. They determined that they're going to implement it right now. And here's the thing: the EU, it does this, this this plan in terms of Helms, you know, the 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 uh, the, the restating of uh, of uh, Helms Burton as far as the European Union is concerned, is not setting very very well. In fact, one thing the European Union said, talked about was the fact that they're going to protect their corporations. In other words, uh, when when the Cubans, anybody else for that matter, try to sue the Cubans in terms of you know properties lost. Uh, it impacts on the European Union's bottom line. And the thing is, the European Union has a population they have to feed, clothes, educate, and so forth. And they understand the implicit threat Hamburg posed to their bottom line. And so the European Union said, we're going to actively fight the U.S. to make sure you know, they don't succeed in what they're trying to do. So not only uh, potentially Cuba to stand up in terms of fighting against this insanity, but you're also going to have a fight in terms of the European Union. Because on this one, they're, they're, they're in opposition to what the U.S. is doing because it undermines their bottom line. And so, therefore, it's going to be very interesting how that plays itself out. I hope the EU is true to its word and prevent the U.S. from actually carrying it out, but we'll wait and see. I just found it interesting for them to make that argument, and they already were just taking gangsting people, resources and properties and lands, and, you know, that's been the whole history of America. It just it's amazing in terms of uh, how they frame things and don't take a look at themselves. But anyway, let's move forward. Brother Moses, talk to us. What's going on in your community in the world? Well, there's a whole lot of well, you, you basically covered what I was going to bring out was it. The occupation of the Venezuelan embassy is uh, is key, right? And right now, in terms of one of the issues that uh, in, the, in the left and uh, the movement, and uh, 
So, but yeah, this is this this uh, the situation uh, um, has has is, has so many implications. I mean, so many ways it can go in terms of how the fascinization process within the USA could catch up with the with the overall movement and uh they could they could be having police forces in there with trying to gangster them out and uh you know, I I wouldn't put it past Trump. Uh, uh it should be interesting how this thing plays out. It's just beginning. Okay. Brother Zubari, talk to us. What's going on in your world in the community? I recently read an article about a town in Georgia named LaGrange. And the issue with LaGrange, Georgia, is that they've implemented um, this um, dubious maneuver where if you have unpaid court fines, that can lead to your utilities being cut off. And LaGrange, for the most part, is a city where you have a lot of working-class people, so it's not a town where only so much wealth that goes around in terms of LaGrange because you're talking about this particular city to LaGrange is the working class, and then those who own most of the property are on the elite part of town. And this uh, situation is very similar to Flint, Michigan, where people are taking control of your livelihood by cutting you off to the basic essentials because of unpaid court fines, and originally decided off of the situation where people were no, noting um, a dangerous trend of water bills increasing, and they notified the local NAACP, and NAACP got an increased number of um, these particular instances, and they looked into it, and that's when we discovered what the city was doing. So yet again, you see an example where those that are poor and impoverished are going to um, suffer at the hands of the elite in terms of policies like this happening. And what's particularly dangerous is that while this particular instance is under review in court, it is known that a very notorious conservative justice appointed by Agent Orange is one of the people overseeing this particular case. So there's strong suggestion that she's going to seek to somehow find this ensure that this is dismissed and that it can continue to be politics as usual. You know, to me, this reminds me of a continuation of a new form of Jim Crow laws in terms of how they use laws to continue to um, oppress African people and people in um, underdeveloped communities. Anybody else would like to respond to that, that, that dynamic that Bob just raised? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think part of it is when we talk about this undeclared war uh, that's declared mm-hmm. upon people, you know, poor people and people of color. We got to understand that when we talk about this undeclared war, we're talking about real strategy and tactics. So when we talk about how these people go about, you know, uh, um, attacking people, one of the ways they do it often is, is by simply uh, by using law to justify, you know, very atrocious kinds of uh, policies the adverse impact on the lives of the community, and particularly the children. So all of this is all about disempowering the people because it's all about their power. And one of the things we can't divorce what's happening in terms of these kind of policies from the overall decline of the economy. You know, one of the things, Brother Africa, is that when we talk about in terms of the, the indebtedness of the society, one of the things we get very, very clear on, there's a recent article I read in which they talk about the fact 
if you broke U.S. debt down, uh, we're talking about a neighborhood of $220,000 per man, woman, and child in America, every man, woman, and child in a debt at $220,000. More importantly, the Federal Reserve recently updated the, 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 the when we talk about national statistics related to, to uh, the, 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 the budget, we thought that with the, debt, the national debt was $22 trillion. The federal, 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 um, the federal banks say, no, it's not $22 trillion, it's $72 trillion. So clearly, given that reality, uh, you know, it means that the system is fundamentally unstable, which means that the desperation to, to, for money at all costs becomes extremely important. And given that context, the needs and suffering of mass of people becomes really irrelevant. What's important to them is to have access to those, to those funds, to those revenue, and that's precisely what they're doing. Of course, in the process of receiving those funds, they're going to debilitate. They're going to destroy a lot of lives. But you know what? This is capitalism. Who gives a damn? Who cares? So if the people themselves don't care, then what can you do? The people themselves have, must understand, you know, that uh, in terms of their own humanity, that they have to stand up. They don't have a choice. Uh, simply, you know, being, you know, being, um, you know, acquiescing to this insanity, it's not a, 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 a brilliant tactical strategy. As a matter of fact, it's a counterproductive strategy because the more you acquiesce, the more you give in, the more you be quiet on what's going on, then the more you, you know, you're negatively impacted by the policies that these people formulate. So this is a fundamental problem that we're confronted with in society, and it's incumbent upon people to wake up and understand that when we talk about this undeclared war against people, you know, working people in society, then we better understand clearly when we say that we mean war, literally. Hmm. Panelists, what do y'all make of this phenomenon of all these people all of a sudden is running for uh, the national presidency in the year 2020? What is this all about? And how does it benefit or how does it hurt the overall movement of the people? Uh, the the number of candidates running for the presidency in 2020, you said, a Brother Africa? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, that? I think it, um, one, I think, and I concur with the points Haki made, and also I would add that all these candidates running for the presidency actually sows confusion and further division. And I think it, um, you know, and, and the reason why I say it spreads confusion is because everybody, uh, you know, are saying similar things, but not really getting at the root of the problem. And, uh, which is, uh, of course, capitalism and all of its manifestations. But uh, let's see. But they're saying similar uh, similar things in different styles, and I think that's where the confusion comes into play. Where you have all these candidates, uh, uh, you know, vying for the Democratic nomination, going against one, uh, you know, uh, you know, candidate on the Republican side, Trump. So I think it, uh, you, uh, you, you know, it's uh, it's a recipe. For Trump getting uh, getting back into office, most likely, because uh, b- because uh, what opposition is this is very fragmented and disorganized. Mm-hmm. Anybody else like to get a shot at give me analysis? Yeah, well, shout analysis on this yeah. so-called phenomenon of people who want to run there all of a sudden for. Presidency of this country. Go ahead, Brother Hacking. 
Yeah, well, you know, I got to say, Brother Africa, you know, I'm, I'm a bit um, taken back, uh, you know, by Joe um, Biden's candidacy. One of the things that he alleges that he pretty much supports a lot of things that Bernie Sanders is about, because he understands systemic wrongs committed against the African people in society, he realizes that it has to change. Well, one of the things, when I mean, you look at Joe Biden's history in terms of progressive kinds of programs, he's been adamantly opposed so anything that's going to empower the African masses in terms of the kind of disparities, the kind of injustice African people in society are confronting with on a daily basis. So the interest is that he's going to run. So clearly what his candidacy is going to siphon a lot of votes away from um, from, um, from, um, from, his, um, from Bernie Sanders. Uh, so, I'm, so I think that's very, very problematic. And I, and I am concerned in terms of giving the fact, you know, you know that um, you know, um, Trump has a solid base. Uh, he has the most, the most uh, not radical, but certainly the most ill-informed bunch, uh, you know, supporting him, uh, who could care less in terms of the the kind of iniquities uh, his policies represent or the kind of injustice his policies represent. They could care less about any of that. So I think that he has a solid base, and, and, and that, that is a concern. Uh, now, it seems to me that, you know, one of the things that, given Bernie Sanders' history and his long history of struggle in terms of trying to move the country, you know, uh, to the, at least to the center. But it seems to me to be coming upon those, you know, those, those Democratic uh, uh, leaders to get it fall in line and support uh, for his, for, uh, Sanders' candidacy. But that's not happening. So, so it also so it sort of underscores his pursuit in terms of power at all costs. And so, to, so in terms of where the country really needs to be, I don't think these Democrats are particularly concerned in terms of where the country should be. In fact, they're more concerned about their personal gain. And so for me, that's problematic. So I, I understand when we talk about corporate Democrats, we understand that they're very much in, in lock stock with the way things are going. They don't have a problem with it as long as they benefit financially. But the mere fact that Obama, those, those candidates are running for the presidency, the mere fact that they are vociferously fighting against uh, Sanders' uh, uh, empowerment as, as opposed to assisting Bernie Sanders in terms of getting that message out and creating a solid that we are in front, uh, it seems to me, you know, that uh, as Anthony said, that's a real, real, very real concern, you know, that Trump might actually win his presidency again, given his solid base. So it, it doesn't look good at this point. So we'll see what happens, Brother Africa. Jabari, Brother Moses, would y'all make us some of the candidates? Would y'all make us some of the candidates? Would they convince you to vote for them? Jabari, you know, Moses. it's very interesting in terms of some of the rhetoric that is being fueled by a number of these candidates. And I'm particularly troubled by those who say they don't want to give any kind of thoughts to exploring the idea of reparations. It's very interesting how when it comes to other groups of people who were supposedly um, exploited, taken advantage of, and had a great atrocity done, we give them money, it's not an issue. But when it comes to Chateau enslavement, it's very interesting how a number of these candidates, because of who their financial backers are, say little to anything at all. So that's the thing you got to say about a number of these candidates, they're corporate shields, and they're not going to do anything that's going to be counteractive to the status quo. So because of that, I find it very troubling, but we'll see how it shape out in regards to those that said they would, they said they would pursue some form of um, looking into um, a reparation policy. So in regards to that division, it's interesting given also other trends, too, in regards to certain people that may say they fall on the Democratic line in regards to the issue of socialism. Brother Moses, what do you make of so many candidates? How they sway you to their side and say you get, they'll get your support? 
it says, you know, this was about 20 of them now on the Democratic side yeah. trying to yeah. get that primary. Uh, uh, I, you know, some of them, I guess they're trying to make a career out of this thing or something, you know. Uh, uh, you have to factor that in as a, as a factor. Uh, the fact that you can raise money and, and you are and do certain, you know, have a certain lifestyle that goes with the campaign, more or less. Uh, but uh, I, I don't, when it all boils down, it's, it's, I just, it's, just, it's, it's sickening to think that Trump would be in there four more years. I can't. I can't imagine that, man. I mean, it's hard for me to get my head around that, but that's a possibility. Uh, but uh, we shall see how this thing plays out. Uh, uh, it's all about internal contradictions, you know. That's the, that's the reason things change, because of internal contradictions. But it should be interesting to see. You know, I have some thoughts, and I would like to maybe get your response to some of my thoughts. You know, one of the things I, you know, I've been looking at, and I think I will argue ever since Barack Obama became the president of this country, as Brother Malcolm said, if Africa becomes president of this country, it's clearly indication that this country has collapsed, and as it collapsed. You know, they want to get the people, deceive the people, give all kind of illusion that it's still functioning under a illusion of being a democracy. So in one sense, I think they're creating all these these, 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 these so-called people who express the interest to run to make it, to make the rest of the world look like that they have a democracy here. That anybody can run and may have a chance to become president. So it's good for the capitalist system in terms of the sky if it, it, it collapsed or it's collapsing. Number two, I thought it was interesting to Joe Biden coming back into the race. I think part of his reason coming back into the race is that the so-called real establishment don't like the candidates who are running for that for that position. I think he came back in to try to eliminate and control the narratives of who will have a you know a, a, a illusionary chance of winning that seat. And three, I find his first response when he made his announcement that he's going to run for president. He told Barack Obama, don't endorse him. Now, he was the vice president under this man. In other time, he'd be arguing for more African votes, but he can come out and tell this African man not to endorse him. Now, what is that all about? What is that all about? So I find this, um, this, this all this is part of the uh, illusion of trying to maintain the, the, the projection to the rest of the world that, this, damn, this country is, is, is a democracy and it's open to anybody. And that goes a long way to keep pushing this American narrative that we know we're open and people can do as they please and they have possibilities of doing anything that they want to do. So those are some Brother of my Africa. thoughts. I'll just like to get some of your response to it. Brother Africa. Yes, sir. Um, in regards to your assessment, in regards to Biden um, asking Obama not to endorse him, you got to keep in mind that Biden showed you that a lot of his supporters come from the same kind of racism that have us in this mess anyway to so-called make America great again type um, thought process. 
because there was a comment that, and we can't forget that in 2007, Biden said that Obama was the first clean African-American candidate. Now, given that he's saying this from a position of power because he was a senator at the time, what kind of comment is that to make in a mainstream media platform when speaking to another Af- speaking to an African man? If you're going to make a comment like that, what do you really think of people of color and how much for granted do you take them? So you understand Biden is going to use some of the same tricks where, you know, go up there lie and say, hey, I, I fought in your interest, so why don't you support me? Um, and we can defeat Trump together. So you got to understand politics as usual. I think also, I think also, I think also, one of the things, uh, you know, when, when, when we when we talk about you know how these how these races are funded in America, we talk about the role that corporations and the wealth play in terms of funding these these these, these campaigns. We got to understand that first and foremost, they're beholden to the very powerful in the first place. That's the very key. I think one of the things that um, Biden's candidacy does is that it certainly is going to be instrumental in reducing uh, the amount of funds other corporate uh, Democrats are going to have access to. Because Joe has a proven track record in terms of, you know, as Brother Jabari said, that, uh, and that, 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 that lines up, you know, well in terms of the interests of the powerful and the elite in the society. And so, therefore, you know, if, if anybody that's going to receive the bulk of the, of the corporate funds, it's going to be Joe Biden. So I think that's one thing that's, that's very, very problematic. But also, just as a tactic, I think one of the things is notion in terms of America being democracy. Of course, you and I understand, Brother Africa, that this is not a democracy. It was never democracy, it was never designed to be a democracy. We understand that. But to the extent that they keep telling the world that you got a democracy here, I think it does make it look like you got all these candidates running for the president of the United States because only in America could such a could such a event occur. And you're absolutely correct. They want the world to think that. But I don't think the world is that naive. They really believe that America is, in fact, a democracy. I think they look around and they see firsthand the kind of cabal corruption, uh, the kind of collusion uh, that exists in society. And if we talk about uh, corruption on a grand scale, we've got to look at the orange, the orange individual in the White House right now in terms of this propensity, in terms of you know, uh, collusion and, and criminal activity. So clearly, um, this, this question in terms of collusion, to uh, um, uh, crime, this question in terms of corruption, it's endemic in the whole, in the whole political structure. And so, therefore, you know, all of these individuals running, you know, for the presidency doesn't underscore anything. The only thing it underscores is the level at which the, the, the political class in America is very skilled in terms of tactically playing games for the sole purpose of deceiving the mass of people internally in the United States or thinking that they actually have a choice. In reality, they have no choice. You know, Haki, um, to add to you, um, the last point you raised, also, I think one incentive for why a lot of people is getting in there is because they, they, they have learned the game. Most of these people have no no idea to truly believe that they're going to win. But they do see this as another means to raise some money and put in their personal account after the election is over with. And the whole intention has always been to get money and not to necessarily win. This is what this process allows you to do. So I see it as another hustle for how they ripping the good people off for their own self-interest of gaining more money in the individual account. Because money that they raise, from my understanding, if they don't spend it up or have it left over, they allow them to keep it. Well, that's, part, that's, that's precisely, Brother Africa, that's part of the corruption. That's, that's precisely part of the corruption. It's all a game. And unfortunately, you know, 
most most uh, most people in America lack a certain amount of political sophistication in terms of understanding how the you know, system works. Uh, given the overwhelming amount of propaganda uh, that exists in society, it becomes very very difficult for people to engage the political the, the political system or to see the political system for what it actually is and how it actually works. And until people come to that consciousness, that realization in terms of how it works through some study and some kind of uh, uh, discourse, they're not going to fully appreciate how this how this system works and the games have been perpetuated to make it appear that somehow the society is democratic. So I think that nobody should be surprised that when when they play these kind of games for the sole purpose of uh, you know self enrichment, they understand there's a lot of money out here to be made, not only from the corporate and the wealthy, but also from the average average uh, citizen out here who take their last twenty five dollars to contribute to these candidacies because they really believe that in fact these individuals are going to bring about much needed change. And the reality is that not a damn one of them are committed to real change because as Barack Obama often talked about. When they ask him why he refuses to uh, to to why from position to power, why he didn't act all those great things that he talked about, and Obama's response, of course, was that well, if he attempted to act enact those things uh, that empower the country, empower the people, then the same fate that happened to John F. Kennedy awaits him. In other words, he realized that if he even tried to really empower the people in society, that he knows a matter of time before they kill him. He understood that. And so, therefore, clearly, uh, these politicians are precisely what they are, politicians, and nobody should be so naive as to believe that any of these people are going to really empower the mass of people in society because their interest doesn't lie with the people. Their interest lies with money and power. Brother Anthony, you want brother to say something? Can I add another point, please? Yeah, go ahead, Brother Jabari. Now, this is something that's extremely dubious, but you notice mainstream media conveniently left out this detail. Joe Biden gave a gave the eulogy at Strong Thurmond's memorial service. Strong Thurmond is a notorious racist, and that's the policy, those were the policies educated as a he endorsed as a proud Dixiecrat. The fact that Joe Biden didn't even call those kind of um, tendencies into question, what does that say about how he feels in regards to certain issues? And the fact that he proudly endorsed this man and did not have to take any issue with giving his eulogy, the only thing he said was his history, is a, the strong term in history was an open book that people can peruse um, when they have the opportunity to do so. So the fact that he did not bring that into question, yet, on the other hand, he's going to say he's going to fight for racial equality. you got to be very careful of the contradictions that, you can easily find by research when you look at the legacy of what Joe Biden um, advocates. Mm-hmm. I would add also that uh, that the, that as um, as everybody's alluded to this point, this um, huge field of uh, Democrat candidates is a smokescreen in a sense. Mainly because if if people would do research, and the problem I have with a lot of voters is that they don't study uh, the candidates closely when they uh, before they go into the voting booth, is that all of these candidates belong to the same political party, and a careful analysis would reveal that, and all of them represent. Of uh, uh, either either multimillionaires or law and or lawyers. So 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 this 
uh, illusion of diversity is a sham because they all, every last one of those candidates represent the same ruling class interests. So you have, what you have in the U.S. is a, a delusion of uh, of diversity. But but the thing about it, the, the fact that there may be two 2,000 different newspapers in the U.S. does not mean that they're necessarily 2,000 different points of view because most newspapers are owned by the same handful of corporations. And the candidates running for the presidency represent the same ruling class interests. So it is, so it is a, a, an illusion uh, of diversity and, uh, and an illusion of democracy, as, uh, as has been correctly pointed out. And let's be very clear. Let's be very, very clear. When we talk about the Democratic candidates, we're not just talking about the white Democratic candidates. We're talking about all of them. We're talking about the African candidates as well. There's not a short difference between Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. There's not a short difference in terms of the philosophy. Uh, in other words, when we talk about in terms of you know uh, so, you know in, uh, innovating policies which are geared toward benefits to, to corporations and the wealthy, then these guys are simply uh, uh, um, uh, individuals willing willing to carry out that policy for the benefit of corporations and the very wealthy. So it doesn't make a difference in terms of your ethnicity in terms of you know being a politician. The bottom line is the politician is not about the subsidy or or, or systemic changes that need to take place in society and offer the society to be what it professed to be. Uh, so when we talk about in terms of uh, when we talk about justice, uh, when we talk about in terms of people access to, to education, people access to to to, to homes or to to shelter uh, or homes, or uh, we talk about people's access to quality food. All those things are human rights. Of course, in the context of, of capitalism, when we talk about human rights. Capitalism doesn't see those kind of things that are so endemic to the human need as in terms of being viable. In other words, uh, people, the suffering of people, the host of suffering of people is, is really irrelevant. What's most important for capitalist, capitalism is the, the elevation of power, status, and wealth. And so, therefore, in that context, in order to create, receive or to get that power, status, and wealth, you've got to be willing to cripple, to hurt to liquidate lots and lots of people. And it doesn't matter if you're white, black, blue, green, yellow, purple dot. It doesn't really matter. And so when we, so we were very clear on this point in terms of when it means to be a politician. So we're not just singing out any particular politician. We're talking about all of them. Uh, Bernie Sanders has some good ideas in terms of trying to implement democratic socialism in America. Of course, we're not, I, I, we're not stupid. Of course, we understand that uh, if, in fact, if he actually tried to carry it out, he'd be a dead person if, in fact, he went, if he won, if he won, if he won, if he won presidency. We, we understand that. But at least the symbolism, at least the idea to raise the question in terms of democratic socialism is something that people want to hear. They want to hear that there's a possibility that America could join the 21st century and like other uh, Scandinavian nations implement democratic socialism uh, uh, to the extent that, uh, you know, everybody in society gives a fair shake in terms of achieving what they call the American dream. So I, I, I think that uh, it's important that people understand that we're not making a distinction between you know, ethnicities, that we're talking about politicians generally. And, and whereas I respect uh, some of these sisters who are in, currently, you know, in the Congress who are doing good work, do, doing good work in terms of killing a lot of things in which the uh, Democratic uh, leadership is uncomfortable with, I support that. But their, their appeal is limited in terms of being able to actually move forward because in order for them to move forward, they have to support at a very basis. They have to support 
they have to have the support of their parties. They don't have the support of their parties. So clearly, uh, this notion in terms of what is to be a politician is not about the empowerment of people. It's about the empowerment of corporations and the wealthy. Well, for me, I think when you look at these candidates, regardless of which party they represent, they express themselves in a way that if anybody truly principled, just have any sense of fairness, they could never function under those two platforms. When I talk about the platforms, I talk about the platform of the Democratic Party and Republican Party, which is in essence the same platform. For example, um, a friend of mine was talking to me about a former city mayor of, of Richmond, Virginia, Tim Kaine, and the position that he has taken on Venezuela. Well, his position on Venezuela, he 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 is he is in in stock lock and directly in support of the same position that the orange man is 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 is, is carrying out towards Venezuela. There's no fundamental difference between him being a Democrat and looking at Donald Trump being a Republican. And when you look at the position of Venezuela and the corruption and the injustices that they are inflicting on the people in Venezuela, what kind, what kind of human being can support the notion that any man can just say, I'm a president, and you recognize him as a president, and don't recognize none of the institutions, rules, and policies, and behavior of the people? How do you even justify supporting anything where the whole world knows this is just outright corruption and thuggery? And all of these policies, politicians, politicians knows this. They see the stuff that's going on right now while we're speaking, how the Palestinians are getting murdered, are being assassinated, the kids, women, men. They are fighting with rocks while other people fight with machine guns and, and all kinds of um, all kind of advanced military weaponry, and they said nothing. But they said they support a state that would genocide human beings just because they differ. Just because they say they were, they were there first and they're entitled to the land, which has been the rules that most people, all people, are used around the world, and they will not speak out against that. But they will speak out against a football player. Hit his child. Well, that's the worst thing. He should be. He should not play. Be able to play no more. This is the worst thing you can do. No, that's not the worst thing you can do. Worst thing you can do is have policies and have means means that you create to wipe out hundreds and thousands of millions of people. The worst thing you can do is intentionally, like in Cuba, create policies to try to stop people to death. No, the worst thing you can do is intentionally create all these kind of germ warfare that's going on in these countries. All of a sudden, diseases are coming back. They're supposed to be wiped out many, 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 many years ago. And they support these kind of behavior policies on both sides. Actually, so the real real contradiction is, fundamentally, this is a one-party state. It's no different between the two parties. And they know that. It's still the game they're playing with the people. But yes, Anthony. Yeah, uh, I agree with you completely, Brother Africa, but because, but unfortunately, because our people are disorganized and lack political education, 
they uh, they having trouble seeing through uh, 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 through through the smoke screen of deception. They haven't they that they, they can't they. But if you analyze history and current events carefully, you'll see that the policies uh, of the Democrats and Republicans are no different from each other. Otherwise, you couldn't have a Democrat on one level saying they, uh, that they're in lockstep with Trump's policies toward Venezuela and claim to be uh, uh, to represent a, a, a different interest. Represent the same interest. If two organizations represent the same political interest, then for all practical purposes, they're one political organization disguised as two, organ- as two separate parties. Yeah, but you know what, Brother Africa, uh, you know, I understand the points that you're raising, you're raising and the question turns to the immorality of power. And that's something Brother Bob Brown talks a lot about, and, and I agree with that. Um, certainly, uh, the wealthy got a lot to protect, and so therefore they don't want to lose the, the perks that they enjoy, the power that they enjoy. And so they're willing to do anything in terms of preserving that power. And so that means killing hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, then so be it. That's what they're willing to do. What I find problematic, Brother Africa, is working class, those people out here who are poor or who are out here struggling, and they see this kind of indifference to human life and not understanding that if they can inflict that kind of pain, that kind of murder, that kind of uh, 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 that, that whole process in terms of eradicating lots and lots of people, if they can do it to that group, then why, did you, why is it that you don't understand that they can do it to you too? And so we fundamentally we look at in terms of, for instance, you talk about the Palestinians, and we talk about the, the Israeli, you know, you know, essentially using tanks and, and, and rocket launchers and everything at people who are throwing rocks. Now, clearly there's an imbalance in terms of power now. The U.N. would say that clearly that what Israel, what they're doing is engaging in unlawful conduct. Well, you know what, Israel is supported by, you know, Western nations, who's, and not only just Western nations, but increasingly by nations in the Middle East, in particular Saudi Arabia. So the question becomes, so as, as a person sitting back and observing this, what do you think? Do you don't see the correlation between what's happening to the Palestinian people versus what happened to Africans in America? You don't you don't do you not see the correlation? You see how they're treated? You see how you're treated? There's a system in place that is responsible for that they that 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 poor uh that poor uh behavior that you receive from the wealthy or these people in power simply because of the in their interest in terms of doing so. And it seems to me that on 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 a, on a mass level, when you talk about working people, it's more incumbent, It seems to me it's more important that at least working people understand, you know, that uh, when we see this kind of these atrocities, understand that it it does have some relationship, some relevance in your life, and not see that as an abstract, as an abstraction. Because a lot of times people say, well, okay, that's what's up for the Palestinians, not my concern. Or that's the suffering of North Africans, not my concern. That's the suffering of people in Central America, South America. That's not my concern. Not understanding that the same system that inflicted harm on the people around the world, the same system that inflicted harm on people right here in America. So it's incumbent upon people, working people, I'm beginning to understand that there is there's not in your benefit to acquiesce or to, 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 to applaud this kind of behavior. Because understand, as Malcolm said, when we talk about the chickens coming home the roofs, we got to understand, as this society deteriorates, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to come here, and in that same kind of force they're unleashing on people around the world, they're going to unleash it on a population here in America. People got to understand the implicit threat of all of this, and it's very, very important that they do that. Brother Haki, 
I give um, I can I concur with you completely, and I'll give you a concrete example of that. There are several cities in the U.S. that routine, routinely send send members of their police forces to Israel to design the state of Israel for training. And they get this training, and so they learn the same tactics that the Israeli police and military use against the Palestinians and, per, and perpetrate them against Africans inside the U.S. And, see, and I think people have to start making the connection that the U.S., Canada, Australia, Israel, they're all settler colonies. And they not only behave in a similar manner toward the indigenous populations, but they share information and technology with each other. That's that's a very good that's a very good that's a very good very good example you that you raised, um um um, Brother Anthony, a uh, very good, very good example. Uh, but it's, it seems to me, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't know what it's going to take in terms of sort of encouraging people to understand implicit threat in terms of U.S. foreign policy and what it means for their lives. Uh, clearly, uh, one of the things we're very clear on, and when we talk about the flow of history, one thing we're clear on: no matter how many people they kill, no matter how many people they incarcerate, no matter how many people they intern, the reality is that this change is inevitable. And no, no power on the face of the earth can change that. No matter how many, how many weapons you innovate, uh, no matter how much uh, money you use in terms of you know, creating weaponry, no matter how much you employ troops around the world for the sole purpose of uh, assassinating people or killing large groups of people, none of that is going to stop history from, from, from self-actualizing. History has its, has its own reality. And so this is the thing we have to understand. But what we're trying to do at the very minimum, we're trying to minimize potentially the number of people who are going to lose their lives needlessly as a result of U.S. foreign policy, uh, even though we understand change is inevitable. So it's incumbent upon people out here, you know, working-class people, African people, and or poor people, it's incumbent upon them to understand that, you know, that you have to become organized. Even if you don't understand what the issues are, you know, if you, know, if you don't want to educate yourself in terms of what's going on, at least talk to somebody in terms of who understands what's going on and at least, you know, you know, vicariously, you know, at least begin to empathize with this notion that perhaps that can be a better world. So it's important that we, we, we try to get people to understand that when we talk about this, this, this intrinsic war, uh, this war against people, uh, this war against humanity, it's no joke. So when George Bush innovated his whole war on terror, you know, back in the 80s, um, you know, clearly, I mean, he was, he was talking about the fact that you know, that we're going to fight, the U.S. is going to fight indefinitely, which means that they're committed to the idea of destruction of millions and millions of people. They make no bones about it. They're committed to that. But you can't destroy a million, million people without undermining your own interests. In other words, if markets are so important in the context of capitalism, if you don't have those people to sell to, what you do, what happens? You undermine your own market. So capitalism can expand, so you undermine your own interests. Well, which means that as you undermine your interests, there's no money internally here in America. That's no money for the people. The people becomes the enemy, and this is important that people understand that. And so when, when so when they go to Israel and they learn how to how to how to fight urban wars, how to assassinate, you know, how to torture, when they learn all this stuff, what do you think they're going to do as the situation in America deteriorates? They're going to go the same strategy from being employed against the people right here. 
Right now they're talking about utilizing drones. They're using drones. Some states, some states, including New York, they're using drones to stun the people. Well, now the next step is to have drones that can assassinate people. So clearly, you know, we understand that's an implicit threat, and we have to wake up and understand that, listen, whether we want to or not, whether we're afraid or not, you know what? The bottom line is that we have to stand up. Because the bottom line, you know what? We got no choice. Because one thing is sure, if we don't stand up, we can anticipate that the kind of misery and suffering that people endure is going to exacerbate. It's going to be worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where not only the people become esoteric, in other words, the people become un, uh, a burden for the government, uh, but it's going to impair the government to actually not only just incarcerate, in, in but to literally to eliminate large number of people in, in a fair swoop. So we've got to be very concerned about what's going on and, and the implications of U.S. foreign policy. Can I just add to a point that Brother Anthony made? We got to understand just as we send people abroad to learn those kind of techniques, we have an institution at Fort Benning that used to be called the School of the Americas, which has since changed its name to, just give me one second, the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, which is known for training those people that either become despots or participate with despots and send them abroad. So the kind of foolishness will happen here where people send those kind of scoundrels here to get training and those kind of methods to be sitting abroad that will cause all kinds of chaos and confusion as well. But it's all part of the same um, cauldron. Yeah. Uh, one of the things the enemy has stated many times, and we keep forgetting it, and that is that they have learned that Whatever they have done that has been successful, they will never give that up. So if you look at history and see what they have done in the past and what was that success rate, you can anticipate you see the same thing take place today, and that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And panelists, before we make our transition for Athenian Night Part 2, what is it that you don't understand? I just would like to get you all to talk just a little bit about um, I think this weekend recently, I believe it was like, uh, was Harvard University, Harvard or Yale, where we have had another brother unjustly got assassinated by the police, getting out of his car for no reason, and the policeman just literally shot him down. And the students just raised the hell, but this is another case of look like they just don't give a damn about um, brothers and sisters driving cars. Because if you look at the film, he asked his brother to get out. He got out. Tang got out. Police just took his gun out and just shot him down. Yeah. Uh, is that uh, ongoing psychological warfare against our people? Or is it power of warfare to get us so used to it that we begin to accept us? Because they know that we are not organized and cannot sustain anything if we are disorganized. So what do y'all make of this continuation? I think well, it's, it's a, a part of psychological warfare. I think it's a part of it, and also warfare in general. It's just that they, it's just that they take advantage of our lack of organization uh, to inculcate fear, and uh, and and that's what violence per- perpetrated against a people does. It inculcates fear. And it's something, uh, and it's something that that they learned from the days of chattel slavery. If you can, if you terrorize some people sufficiently, 
and uh, and get them frightened, then that then 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 they that they that they will they will not retaliate. And uh, we have to get organized so that we can defend ourselves. And uh, and um, and uh, we usually and it's usually a case where it is not a one-on-one situation. It's a group that uh that 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 that's actually uh you know uh you know uh taking us out in different ways and attacking us so we have to be we have to plan on a mass scale we need permanent mass organization and that is something we've lacked historically and uh these acts of terror will continue to be perpetrated against us until we get organized enough to defend ourselves. Very good point. Very good point. It's it's, it's really about it's really about it, you, it's it's both things for the Africa. It's a war against African people and the working people, and it's also to instill fear. I think the biggest motivator is all about instilling fear, uh, because it works. It works. And one of the things you know, I, I think that it's important to note is that when we talk about this this question of fear. The people who are most fearless in the African Union happen to be the brothers out there, the so-called open proletariat, brothers and sisters out here who are struggling to survive, who are most who have less fear. In fact, uh, one of the things that uh, you know um, people don't want to talk about, but I think it's important to note, is that when we talk about those brothers and sisters in the street who don't have fear, those brothers, the reality is they may end up being the, the soldiers for the community. Those brothers and sisters may end up being the soldiers, not middle class Africans. Uh, not the wealthy Africans, but those brothers and sisters and the street soldiers in, in the street, you know, who are, who are fearless, uh, who, 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 somewhat, who manage their fear. Uh, I think to the extent that fear exists in the middle-class African community, I think it's, 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 it's enormous. I think there's a big, big fear to the point that people are even afraid to even speak out. Uh, they say, well, if you speak out, there are, there are repercussions of speaking out. Yes, of course, there's repercussions of speaking out. It's not a free society. We understand that. But what is the what is the downside of not speaking out? Uh, in other words, in other words, if you don't speak out, then what you're doing is you're reinforcing those same kind of policies, those kind of same kind of practices that adversely impact on your lives. So we talk about police killings. Well, we can without speaking out, then we can anticipate more police killings. So I, and also I think you ask the question about Africa is why is it is residents uh, uh, residents? Why is it that the the the, the, the politicians? Uh, the government, why did they refuse when the police arbitrarily killed its African citizens? Why there's no outcry from the government? Why is that? Barack Obama tried, but when he tried, they shut him down quick. Remember that in, in Harvard University, when he talked about the fact where um, the police came to, to, to this, uh, uh, I didn't call his name, but he's a professor at Harvard, at Harvard, King. Harvard University. King, I might not yeah, call his name, at Harvard University. Yeah, yeah, I might not call his name, but he's a slave. But anyway, they went. They went. They went to his house and they they they, they roughed him up a little bit. And he tried to explain to them, "This is my house. I live here." And they wouldn't even allow the guy to come and dig us in terms of prove that he lived there. They just roughed him up. So they just wanted to prove to him that you know, despite the fact that you know that you got a suit on and you were professor at Harvard University in the final analysis, you're still another end. So I think he got that point now. I think he's he's got that. Finally, I think he's got that point. Yeah, I think he finally understands that. Uh, but I, I, I think that this is question in terms of fear, I think it's something that at some point the community have to get, begin to deal with because, you know, there, is, there are no shortcuts in terms of the dilemma uh, that we're confronted with. Uh, if we don't do anything, when it's the show, we can anticipate more hostility, more injustice. 
But the very minimal, we can we can at least negate a lot of these injustices by simply standing up and creating a perception, at least, that in fact that we're willing to fight for that which is right. We have another recourse because we don't. The downside is potentially, you know, an internment of the reinstatement of African people in America, and that's my concern. Well, panelists, let's um, pause for the calls. When we come back, we're going to make our transition to our theme tonight. What is, what is it that you don't understand? Part two. And when we come back, we're going to discuss Pelosi wants to explore paying reparations for slavery. We're talking about the con game. Let's, let's, let's take a look at this article when we come back. That was uh, written on the 27th of February. And Nancy Pelosi, she wants to explore paying reparations for slavery. What is that all about? Think about that. When we come back, we'll discuss it. Right now, we want to play this record to the masses, to our brothers and sisters who have always fought against their oppression. We want to let you know that we know it's difficult, but we want you always to keep your head up. We'll be right back. To say the black of the best, the sweet of the juice, I face the dark of the flesh, and the deep of the roots. I give a holler to my sister's own welfare. You clock in, if don't nobody else can. And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot. And when you come around the block, brothers clown a lot. So please don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up. I try to find my friend. 
becoming a hot topic once again. It's been around for decades, as the article correctly states. But um, I think it's getting traction now because of the level of repression that exists inside the African community and also the fact, and also I think it's uh, an effort to get uh, more African support for the Democratic Party. And I think the uh, part of a piece of the, a part of that is the concern that Africans aren't voting in large numbers, and uh, when they do, they tend to vote. They've tended to vote uh, Democratic at least since the, the end of the Great of the Great Depression during the 20th century, but. Um, but uh, but uh, I think I think it's to try to garner that support. But I think it's uh, but I think it's so opportunistic. Uh, you know, a friend of mine pointed out that you, you can only get reparations from a defeated enemy. And uh, this it seems like um, they're talking about primarily uh, uh, you know uh, money for the most part. And really, there's more to reparations than that. And uh, really, from uh, from a revolutionary perspective, money should be the uh, should uh, should be the uh, uh, the least uh, of our concerns. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm, I mean, there's no amount of money that can pay that can repay us for for the pain and suffering and terrorism that we and our ancestors have been subject to for nearly five, five, five centuries. And, uh, and, uh, let's see. And, um, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's not, you get reparations from a defeated enemy. And, uh, what, and, and really what Africans want 
is control of the resources, uh, wealth, technology of their land, Africa. Reparations as it's being framed here is not going to do that. Brother, Brother Haki and Jabari, she's talking about forming a commission that will explore the possibility of paying reparation to, quote, black Americans as a form of restitution for slavery. But here she's talking about just putting another meeting, another committee together to, to explore. What is that to explore, Brother Haki? Well, in a nutshell, it's all about the, 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 the financial benefits in terms of, uh, you know, um, reparations. Conceivably, uh, there is that possibility that, you know, one of the things that Barack Obama tried to do when he was president, he tried to, he wanted $3 trillion to stimulate the U.S. economy. In fact, if he would have got the $3 trillion, uh, not only could he improve the infrastructure of the country, but he could put masses of people to work, which means that the overall economy would benefit. And the those in the, in the Republican uh, era, the Democratic uh, caucuses, understood that, in fact, if he got the $3 trillion, that, in fact, it would, in fact, uh, in fact be very successful in terms of stimulating the economy, one of the reasons why they voted against it. Uh, so I think they see this whole question around reparations as a means in terms of stimulating the economy. I don't think it has anything to do in terms of um, addressing the historical wrongs committed against African people. I don't think that at all. Um, I'm mindful of the fact that in, in Australia, one of the things that they've done was that uh, there were those those Aborigines uh, who were uh, taken from their families illegally and uh, who were uh, sort of, um, for lack of a better term, whitewashed. And also those, those Aborigines who lost their, their wealth and lost their belongings, you know, simply stolen from them by those positions of power. So the mere fact that, that Australia understood that historically that was a wrong, uh, it's only a first step in terms of in terms of really addressing the systemic damage that you did to the Aboriginal people. So likewise, when we talk about America, when we talk about systemic damage to African people, uh, nothing about the study of, uh, of uh, the um, reparations is going to deal that whole systemic piece in terms of the ears or, or the ills that you picked up on African people. In fact, uh, very, they, they understand quite well in terms of the impact and very negative impact enslavement uh, has had on the psychic psyche of African people. They're very aware of that. So the reparations is not going to address that. Simply, I think, for, for them, it's simply, uh, it comes down to economics. This is a way in terms of getting into the system, which is very needed to stimulate the economy. And I think, as, aside from that, I think anything else is just, uh, just uh, red herring. I really don't think there's any other real motivation other than the monetary piece as far as they're concerned. Well, Zubari, Sheila Jackson Lee has the legislation to study it. And Pelosi says she support it. But again, what is your take on this question of all oh, the study, study, study? Is study just another way to continue to prolong you know, and not recognize the reality? The word study is a buzzword that's used in mainstream media several times over. Especially when you look at um, certain medical conditions that are a detriment and a known ailment. You always hear how they're studying to find a cure or they're going to do studies to see what the impact are, impact is. Well, clearly in regards to the crime that was shot on enslavement, we know what the impact is. We know what it has done to devastate a group of people for generations. So why is there a question of doing the research to what the obvious is instead of coming up with a plausible solution to give proper 
give proper due to those people who continue to be impacted by it. Because of the free labor that was in place, you're talking about families that were able to build generations of wealth to the point where that money is still being trickling down to this day. So that's why you always hear people say, oh, money, that's what they're talking about. Money, um, they were built off the backs of enslaved Africans to support um, certain plantation or plantation industries. So the fact that this type of scenario happened, I'm not in favor of any kind of study. I'm in favor of action being taken that will be beneficial to, well, won't completely right the wrong, but to help put us in a better position. Okay. Brother Anthony and Haki, Anthony first, you know, our theme is what is is it that you don't understand? This is what I don't understand. Can you give me some clarity on this? In this article, it says that Black reparations for African Americans could be politically risky for the Democrat. While we are focused on the social effects of slavery and segregation, its continued economic implications remain largely ignored by mainstream analysis, he said. My question is why is it that this whole question of reparations could be politically risky for the Democrat? What are they saying? What does that really mean? Translate that to me. Just a narrative of making that statement. Why would this be risky to any any party, let alone the Democratic Party? Uh, what what the, I think I think the message is that the, that it could alienate uh, European voters, and uh, I mean that's what I take from that. In other words, there is still uh, there is still a segment. Uh, well, you know that there that, that, that were a lot of Europeans that benefited from chattel slavery, and um, well, not a what 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 not 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 a lot, but some that benefited. I should more accurately, and uh, they and 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 wealthy people of any class they don't want a sharing of their wealth. And uh, that's that, that's that, that's the nature of capitalism. They they want to keep as much of that wealth to themselves as possible. So uh, so they're uh, so 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 they would be against reparations. And so, uh, let's see. So would um, and those uh, you know people that tend to blame Africans for uh, for the problems of society, this would prove uh, problematic. So I think that's what that means. That is so uh, politically risky. So what you say to me, brother Anthony, that that segment folks don't want no, and therefore you never have no justice here in this country. Not the way this society is constructed. No. Brother Hackey, give me your still take on this. Is your why become problematic or issue for the Democratic Party? Just even. Um, Address the issue of reparation. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's really problematic for the Democratic Party, and let me tell you why. I think we have to appreciate the history in terms of reparations. One of the things, if we go back to history and we, and we talk about around 1876, 1875, 1877, we talk about General um, Tecumseh Sherman, and one of the things that he talked about in South Carolina was that every ex-slave would be issued 40 acres in a government mule. He tried to push that, and this was under circumstances which is much more, much more, um, uh, much more racism prevalent at that point than it is currently. 
uh, clearly uh, they're just for the war, and so therefore there was a lot of anger, particularly toward African people. But despite that, that he was willing to state that we need to address the wrongs that we committed against the people by ensuring they got 40 acres in the mule. Now, this theme was picked up by the radical Republicans in Congress. They also passed a law in which they wanted to confiscate Confederate property to provide 400 acres in the mule for every ex-slave. And this was back in 1866. And unfortunately, it didn't pass because uh, General Andrew Jackson vetoed it, and so it didn't pass. But the mere fact that you got, you know, these people in the midst of, you know, much more intrinsic racism, much deeper racism, but willing to address the, the historical wrongs speaks values in terms of their real motivation. So I say all that to say this, Brother Africa. I think when we look at it in terms of the, 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 the Democrats' position that it may adversely impact them if they deal with the question of reparations, I think what it is a convenient excuse. I think they don't want to deal with that. I think in their mind, you know, their position is that, you know, uh, you listen, you're American, and that you should, you know, just get over it. Uh, they can't say that. But I think I got a sneaking suspicion that their real motivation is that they, they, are, they are really opposed to this notion in terms of, of, of uh, reparations out of the guys that if they give reparations, it's simply give people something. So the historical wrongs committed against African people, they don't see it as, as, a, as a current concern. They see it as something historical and an unwillingness to understand that what you historically did to a people psychologically was to damage your people. So I don't think the Democratic Party is willing to address that. So I think it's easier for them to simply say, you know what, uh, it's much too problematic for us to deal with, and so you know, we should keep the can down the road. So I think that, uh, you know, I don't think, it's, it's a, I don't think it, it comes down to an implicit threat to Democrat to Democrats' interests. I think it's more of a, a Democratic racism, which, which leads them to oppose the reparations. You know, panelists, Jabari, take the lead, and others can fill in. Hi, Key, I can just pick it back on your last point, and I speak to you know, folks that you raised, and they, you know, they, they understand, but they don't want to. But my question in terms of theme, when we talk about what they don't understand, I think uh, Kennedy Harris made it real clear in this article when she made the statement that I think there has to be some form of reparation. We can discuss what it is. But look, we're looking at more than 200 years of slavery. We're looking at almost 100 years of Jim Crow. We're looking at legalized segregation, and in fact, segregation on so many levels that exists today based on race. What is it that they don't understand? Why is it problematic? Jabari, just your general response. What is it they don't understand? I don't get it. Why do you understand that? I don't. I wonder if it's a question of misunderstanding or a question of I don't want to acknowledge certain truths that's going to alienate those people that are my financial backers. Because as we know, for any politician or any level to be successful and get things done, they have to have access to those individuals that have resources. And as we all know, those people with the resources are only going to give the resources if the parties can ensure that there will be legislation in place that's favorable to what they advocate. So because of that, you have a contradiction. Because as I stated before, if you're talking about the fact that there are certain dubious companies that have made a fortune for, gener- for generations because of the free labor they have from enslavement, they're not going to want to advocate this. So that's what it comes a question to in terms of big business. That's what's in the ears of these politicians, and we know that 
um, when they speak loudly, the politicians are especially expeditious about moving. So it'll be interesting to see how the narrative goes forward. Brother Anthony, your response, I think, has position real clear. What is it that they don't understand? While African people, all people who've been exploited in, 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 in the means of when we talk about how they have denied people the right to to develop, you know, at, at their expense. What is it that they don't understand? Why these people are entitled? They have a right to be compensated. Uh, I think they 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 understand that they don't want to do that because of their selfish individualistic reasons. Uh, let's see. I think what people don't uh, uh, see, there are some people that have a view that slavery is something that happened a long time ago. It is that not that long in the history of a people. And the thing about it, though, the psychological uh, impacts of um, the terrorism and violence we're subject to in order in order to produce that forced labor has psychological impact on us to this day. And I think that is the part that a lot of people might not understand. The fact that, uh, that, that, you know, uh, that, 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 uh, the, the whippings, the training, uh, the, uh, you know, the sexual abuse and violence perpetrated against, our ancestors that has that had a psychological impact us that has lasted us into this day and 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 not to mention that the violence perpetrated against us did not end with chattel slavery it just took different forms and uh, it was based on our ethnicity that we were so persecuted so I think uh, so. Uh, so I, 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 you know, the long periods of torture and terrorism can have a deepening a, a deep impact on future generations of people. And I think people understand that we were subject to that, but what a lot of people might not understand is the ramifications. It has on us to this day, such as Brother Haki. You know the narrative now. Every time when an athlete um, get into some kind of physical confrontation, it become it become major news. You know we can't put up with this violence. We can't put up with this. But look at the violence that has been 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 imposed upon us since our arrival. Where's the outcry between that violence? If they not for some form of reparations, are they willing to fight towards creating, getting rid of, or reducing, or uh, eliminating inequality? <laughs> no, that's that's not going to happen. Part of obfuscating the question around uh, reparations is so they don't have to uh, change the society. Because they fundamentally understand the society itself is the uh, catalyst. 
in terms of all these evils that uh, that have been inflicted upon the African people. They understand that. They're, they're not naive. They tell you that they don't understand that, but they understand it. Now, poor folks may not understand it, but certainly the, the wealthy white folks who, who study history, they, they understand it very, very well. But one of the things I want to dispel, Brother Africa, is this is important that we, we discuss this, 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 this myth. And when white folks say, well, my ancestors own slaves, uh, so I don't, there's no benefits to me. Well, one of the things, let's be, let's be very honest about this. White folks, all white folks, irrespective of where you come from, you benefited from slavery. Uh, we talk about a system in place where you, which, which, which literally um, treated people like shadow slavery, making it possible for this country to create the kind of wealth it, it, it uh, created, and the process being able to innovate technology for the sole purpose, you know, of furthering the wealth for the few. Keeping in mind, so when those people who uh, came from different parts of the world who were uh, looking for work, the jobs were available simply because of the, the, the drudgery and the pain that was inflicted upon African people. So you benefit because of that historical pain, not only historical pain, but the current pain. So for those white folks who run that bush, excuse me, French, who run that nonsense, you know, it's very important to understand that, you know, you can't obfuscate the reality because you benefit from this, and they know that. And one of the reasons why you came to America is that you understood that your whiteness made, 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 made you unique, and you understood that. So let's not deceive ourselves to believing that white folks who come from, well, out my ancestors ain't come from, come from America, we had nothing to do with it. No, you had nothing to do with it, but you benefit from the system of, of slavery, um, certainly historically as well as now. So let's, let's dispel this notion. Um, I think, um, and one last thing, Brother Africa, you know, I, I think that, you know this question. This this question of reparations. You know. Uh, you know. You know. It's it's a very difficult question to engage unless you're willing to deal with the what it is, what it means to be American. And a lot of people in the society don't want to look at what it means to be uh, American. There has to be some self critique uh, for those people who brutalize other hu- other human beings. For, the, for I mean, not for a small period of time, but we're talking about centuries. Utilize people not just in America but throughout the world. Uh, we look at Africa. We look at Central South America. We look at uh, the Caribbean. We look at Australia. We look at all of these countries around the world in which these white folks brutalize people of color. Uh, it's very difficult to look at that brutal history and look at yourself for who you are. And so, so therefore, there's a reluctance in terms of even dealing with this question of reparations because all of it, all of, all of that entails. So you have to begin to look at it in terms of what it is, in this particular case, what it is to be in America in terms of the kind of brutality, not historically, but it happening now, which never stopped. It's just been continuous. So I think it's very difficult in terms of dealing with this question. And, uh, and so until you get American people uh, to deal with what it is in terms of what it would be American, uh, they're not going to look at themselves and who they are. They're not going to do that. They're going to attempt, they're going to, attempt to, to project simply all, give those bad attributes or true bad attributes like violence to other people. In reality, you're the most violent people on the planet, but yet you keep on calling most depressed the people who are sick with the most violence. You call them violent, but in fact, you refuse to look at your own history in terms of the kind of violence you historically as well as now uh, you, uh, you proliferate. So clearly, we know, uh, you know it's a very difficult question in terms of uh, reparations. And I don't think we're going to have most folks willing to even deal with uh, reparations something because they have to objectively look at the American history. I don't think most white folks are ready to do that. All right, let's give, let's give the easy road out, but it's a step forward towards the right direction. Are they willing to deal with disparity in income as it relates to if we work the same job, you should get the same pay, regardless of sex, race, et cetera? What about the question of disparity in income? Why would they address the disparities of incomes? Why would they do that, Brother Africa? Why would they do that? 
it's 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 a it's a capitalist system. It's it's not about it's not about equity. It's not about equality. It's about it said it who won't can do benefit reparation. Huh? They said it won't do reparation. Okay, we can't. No, they don't want to do reparations. Why? Well, because you, because you're dealing with reparations, which means that fundamentally there has to be a transfer of of of, 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 fin- of finances, and they're not going to do that. The opposition is that we we want we want all of the all of the finances. We want all of the money. But therefore, anything that says that uh, why don't you transfer that wealth, uh, they're going to reject. So when you talk about equal wages or even talk about reparations, in their minds they're thinking like you out of your mind. Why would I do that? It's a capitalist society. You know, I'm trying to get even more. So why would I do anything that's going to that's going to spread the wealth? I'm not going to do that. So I don't think you can deal with those questions honestly unless you're going to deal with some of the shortcomings as related to capitalism and in, in, in the kind of a uh, uh, maniacal nature that we know capitalism to be. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't think all those questions can be dealt with, brother, without dealing with the question of capitalism, brother Africa. And I don't think nobody in the society is ready to critique capitalism, uh, at least not now. Maybe in the future we'll see. Brother Zabari, what's wrong with equal work for equal pay? If you do the work, you get equal pay. Real simple. What's the contradiction not wanting to support that? Brother Anthony? Yeah, um, equal pay for, uh, for, for equal work. Um, um, you know, it's a, you know, it's an excellent idea, but the thing about it though, but I mean, but, uh, but capitalism thrives off, uh, off of, uh, inequality, inequality of wages, uh, and a lot, uh, and a lot of times, um, you know, wages are, ba- are, are, are based on things like, uh, you know, in addition to things like ethnicity, seniority, et cetera. Uh, indeed, under if this was a just society, there would be equal pay for equal work, you know. But, uh, but, but, but this is a, uh, but, but this is a very discriminatory society, and uh, and and to this day, there's still disparities uh, between uh, you know men and women, for example, you know. So. Um, you know, so really, and uh, you, uh, uh, you know, in order, in order for equal pay and equal work, uh, you know, to become a a, a reality, uh, has to be a, a a change in the system. Hey, brother Africa, check this out. When we talk about equal pay, this is interesting. In Texas and Louisiana, uh, they've been using patients who are there for drug treatment and alcoholism. They've been using them to provide free labor uh, for giant corporations like Walmart and uh, Exxon. And the whole notion is that uh, the work, that at least these, these agents are saying that work is therapeutic, and so therefore that's why they send their clients out there. But when it comes to actually providing care for their patients, there's no care. These individuals are a money-making tool. It's all about the, those, those, those organizations making money and corporations making money simply because they don't have to pay the labor. So I say that to say that the thing that we had to understand is that when you contact the capitalism, when you start talking about essentially what you're alluding to is fairness, you can't talk about fairness because they don't understand what that means when you start talking about fairness. Uh, so one of the reasons when you talk about the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the, the movement, uh, this large uh, move from, um, from the U.S., 
you know, around the world to 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 um, to to uh, Asia, to Africa, uh, to Caribbean places around the world. The reason that move was taking place was for cheap labor, and so the idea is, as opposed to paying people in America, you know, fifteen dollars an hour, you can move abroad and you can pay people, you know, you can pay people four or five, six dollars an hour. You see. And so the bottom line is that it enhances, you know, their bottom line. And so, therefore, this question to some justice is not a question to them. They don't understand what you're talking about when you talk about justice. They think that you're being stupid, that you're being naive. It's all about the money. And so, therefore, when we talk about equal work for equal pay, we understand that they always find some justification, whether you're a woman, whether you're a person of color, whether your religion is not right, or they'll find some reason to justify paying you less because that's part of the tenets of capitalism. That's what they do. Because it's all about the pursuit of the bottom line. It's all about the pursuit of profit. And so this question of equal right, equal, equal work, equal pay, we're not surprised that they use our ancestors for the sole purpose in terms of bringing them wealth because that's what capitalism is all about. Well, panelists, last question. We move on to our next topic. I'm just wondering, Nancy Pelosi, when she came to Howard University and chose you reparation as her focus point for speaking, do you think she would carry, carry the same subject to, to to maybe Yale, Cornell, or Ohio State? If she has such a conviction around considering reparation? Do you think she would give I the same speech so. at European universities? If not, why? What's, what's the rationale behind it? Talk to me, Anthony. Sure. The rationale behind it is because... Um, a lot of the Europe, uh, some Europeans in the U.S. Fe- uh, uh, feel that uh, uh, you know slavery was something that uh, that happened long ago, and they have made the argument that uh, that their ancestors didn't have anything to do, thing to do with it. Even though, as Haki correctly pointed out, uh, Europeans. Uh, uh, whether they were directly involved in the in uh, in chattel slavery or not, benefited from chattel slavery because it was the wealth created by chattel slavery that attracted Europeans from Europe to come uh, to come to the U.S. Anyone else want to take a last stab at that question? No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not likely. It's not likely she would present such a a, a, a speech before a, a predominantly white university. Uh, I don't. I don't see her doing that because the the, the repercussions of doing so is just tremendous. She she raises a lot of money from the wealthy, and so therefore, the only thing she don't want to do is to alienate the wealthy. And so, going to white universities, large white universities, and actually talking about reparations was giving us some legitimacy. I think those wealthy people were frowned upon such a discussion. So I think she wouldn't have done that. I think she felt comfortable how the university doing that because she was speaking for a predominantly, you know, African audience, and so therefore she felt that, you know, there were really no no downside in terms of speaking about reparations. But I wouldn't anticipate her speaking about that in the large white university simply because of the, the downside if she if she would do so. Okay, panel, that's part of this cause. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the question of what democratic socialism is and is not. Listen, what is it about the word socialism that scares so many people in a capitalist country? So we're going to pause for this call to ask the question, think about it. We'll be right back. You listen to Africa on the Move. 
those opportunities are few and far between because it's not a matter of what your skills and talents are, where socialism gives everybody an opportunity under capitalism, it's a matter of who you're connected to or what you may be born into. Because never have you seen an economic system where people became famous just because they had money. And that's happened in numerous instances recently. So anytime you kind of have that dichotomy, unfortunately, people buy into this notion that this high, this um, financial hierarchy is normal when it's quite the opposite. Especially for us as people of color, African people, we were much better when we had bartering systems. We had systems where we could lean on each other as a community, and that is a matter of because I have more material financial wealth, that must mean I have a higher sense of status than you. When no, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about what's going to be the best option to ensure a better humanity for everybody. Thank you, Mr. Jabari. Brother Anthony, when you read this paper from your own tape, how would you explain to people what is what is democratic socialism and what is not democratic socialism? Uh, so, well, f- in my view, that that there there only uh, uh, there's only one true form of socialism, and that's scientific socialism. Democratic socialism is kind of kind of like an uh, it's kind of like a a, a reform. Uh, 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 an effort to reform capitalism, which is impossible, uh, because the, uh, because if they're rich, then they have to be poor. And what socialism does is it it it, it uh, minimizes that dichotomy. And uh, and and uh, socialism, uh, you know, uh, uh, the resources. Of society are shared among the people equally. You don't have uh, one group of people exploiting another group of people in socialism. And uh, so, uh, 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 for me, social uh, socialism at its highest level of development, you would not have rich or poor. Uh, everybody would be part of the the, the working mass of people. And the reason why you have uh, the rich uh, become that way because they've amassed the resources and means to exploit uh, uh, the people that are poor, and that's generally how you become rich in a in, in a capitalist society. Uh, let's see. Now, this article talks about how. Uh, how uh, 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 you know the thing that the democratic norms that existed in some of the capitalist states that had socialist parties at the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, contrast that with um, with the uh, Bolshevik party that existed uh, in Russia, and uh, because of. Uh, because Russia went from feudalism to socialism, it had never uh, it had it had never experienced uh, that went through that mercantile phase, and um, because uh, the Bolsheviks aspired to communism, uh, let's see, uh, socialism began to have a negative connotation among the working people in capitalist societies. 
I would add that it was also due to the propaganda of the ruling bourgeoisie that turned people against socialism also. Okay. Brother Haki, what's your take from this article? Yeah, well, you know, Brother Anthony, you know, I'm I'm not sure if we can liquidate your class uh class uh you know, um class standing in society, even social society. Uh people have different skills, different capabilities, uh, different uh, jobs that are that are required of them. So it'd be sort of difficult to liquidate uh, class. And the thing is that when we talk about the democratic socialism, we talk about irrespective of the function you serve uh, in that society, it your your humanity is not diminished. Unlike a capitalist society in which you know you're treated according to where your class where your class is, uh, in a so, different social society when you talk about um, Scandinavian nations, you talk about the happiest societies on earth because they treat all the people irrespective of what they do for a living, irrespective of the title or status, that they treat them all as human beings, and no one is more entitled to those things they need as a human being than the other, and so therefore because of that they're the happiest people on the planet, uh, you know, and one of the things that uh, the U.S. recognizes. It's because they're the happiest people on the planet. The U.S. has been working, spending many, many billions of dollars to sort of uh, to to undermine that system. They want to destroy that system because people around the world look at the Scandinavian nations and say, "Damn, why can't we be like that?" Or they look at Cuba, as poor as Cuba is, is built in terms of educating people to house people. People starting to say, "You know what? I want to be like Scandinavian. I want to be like Cuba." But the U.S. understands that, and so therefore, there's a certain amount of urgency in terms of destroying those examples of which human beings, the kind of the kind of the kind of structures human beings can erect in terms of making sure you get the best out of human beings. And so capitalism is, is a direct threat, and so therefore they want to destroy it. One of the reasons they attack Venezuela is because Venezuela is on its way in terms of trying to implement democratic socialism, and so therefore it must be destroyed. Uh, Nicaragua the same, Cuba, of course. So clearly uh, democratic socialism is preferable to capitalism because it, teaches, it, it understands two things. One, that the resources of the world belong to the people and not to a particular segment of the people, also, that all human beings, irrespective of status, are deserving of certain kinds of things in terms of being able to live as a human being. So clearly, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the pendulum is swinging, you know, toward the left. I think increasingly more and more people in America are beginning to understand you know, they're being duped and they understand that, that socialism, democratic socialism, is in their best interest. Brother Moses, are you with us? Can you perspective? Yeah, that's question. Kills your perspective on the question of democratic socialism. Why the people? What is it about that so-called concept would be more pro-people versus the realities they are living today under capitalism? From your perspective. Yeah, um, the democratic socialism uh, has been embodied in that paper. Difference uh, uh, is um, obviously they were hostile to the Bolsheviks. And uh, truth to scientific socialism, where the working class takes control of the means of production and and wields it in the interest of society. Uh, obviously, they were opposed to that, but they were for reform uh, of Scandinavian countries, democratic socialism, uh, 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 where the profit drive is still. Still allowed, but uh, certain certain industries are, are, are maybe nationalized, and, uh, and social programs are, are more progressive. Uh, 
anyway, you know, the great the great leap forward for for the Soviet Union was was it because it was scientific socialism, and the same for China and Cuba, and uh, you know, we we are. Uh, we have to understand that uh, uh, the revolution is revolution, and uh, that's when one class takes control, the another class used to have control. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we we our problems in the USA are revolutionary problems, and we have to understand it for what it is, and not be just. By, uh, by being this anti-communist hysteria that uh, plagues the world. Thank you. All right, panelists, child, we're done tonight. We're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, we will make our final announcements and your final thoughts for tonight. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you. 
Have a good night. Thank you. Good night to you, Brother Moses, and thank you for your contribution to today's program. Brother Hockey, your final thoughts for tonight and any announcements you'd like to make? Sure, a couple of things. First, African awareness will travel the road, a liberation of freedom. We'll be going to Cuba. We'll be visiting Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. The trip takes place July 24th, July 31st. More information, we actually call it at 202-714-9435. Or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to Cuba and see for themselves firsthand why Cuba is such a great place, uh, why it's a real um, uh, attribute to humanity. Um, now, having said that, Brother Africa, one of the things that we, we talked a lot tonight about was the intimacies in terms of how the system works. I realize sometimes, you know, we you know we, we get bogged down in terms of terminology not being able to define what the terminology is. We're hoping that for those words that we use, those terms that we use, that the, the people who are really interested in finding out what's going on will use the opportunity to write those, word, those words down and to go back and research those words or those terms and understand the full implication of what they mean. Uh, but having said that, as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to get about the business of unraveling the matrix because it's extremely, extremely important. The situation is critical, and the clock is ticking. And I want to say good night uh, to you, Brother Africa, and to the audience and to the panel, panel members. All right, good night to you, Brother Hackey. Thank you for your contribution as well for today's program. Brother Anthony, here's your announcements and final thoughts for tonight. Certainly. The All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is organizing African Liberation Day, Palestine Day 2019, on Saturday, May 18th, 2019, from 12, p- 12 noon to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. Uh, it's going to be a Pan-African International Revolutionary Podcast and Symposium. Uh, our theme this year is Generations of Resistance and Revolts, Rebellions and Revolutions as Illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine, and Venezuela. Smash the re- repression industrial complex worldwide, remembering and honoring the birthdays of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. For more information, please contact us at 202-239-2676 or visit our website at www.aprp-gc.org. Brother Anthony, tell us this year for those who want to participate in African Liberation Day, don't have to go nowhere. They can just pick up their phone and participate at the symposium. Is this what you're saying to us? Yes. Oh, wow. That should be interesting. So, audience, make sure you take that down. That's going to be an interesting day. If you've never been to one, well, this time they're going to bring it to you. No matter where you are, you'll be able to be a participant this year. So we'll be looking forward to that, Brother Anthony. And at this point in time, we'd like to thank everyone for allowing us to come to their home this evening where we can speak truth to power. And mind you, the Africa on the Move is a weekly program that comes on from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's under the banner of African Women's Association. If you'd like to have copies of this program or if you'd like to be on this program, please email us at Africa on the move two at gmail dot com. And like always, 
we'd like to encourage you to always strive to go forward album, backwards and album. So we look forward and see you next week, and we'll leave you with the song, Palestine, Needs of Freedom. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom.
show respect. Our nation at its best feeds the hungry. Our nation at its worst, at its worst, our nation will have partnership with South Africa. Free, 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 free. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.